So the last few months, it seems, that every day there's almost the exact same story in the news. Five women come forward to accuse so-and-so of this, right? You've seen these news stories? The number changes, the person changes, the allegation changes. But it's the same story. People coming forward for the first time to accuse this person of uh, awful things that have been done to them. It's often a person in power or in authority over them, and that's why they've been afraid to come forward with the, the evil things that have been done to them. But this new story plays over again and again and again. Sometimes it's an actor or a producer or a director or an athlete, a coach, an athletic director, a priest. Sometimes it's a CEO or a news anchor. We see this again and again and again. Politicians keep coming forward. And what's Shocking to me is not just, maybe shocking isn't the right word, but the thing that kind of just stands out is not just the number of these allegations, but the depravity of them. Not only are there a lot of them, but you read some of those news stories and I can't even finish the story because some of the terrible things that have been done to women, to young children, and, and it's disgusting. And we read these news stories, we see them, we hear about them, and, and, and it just becomes part of the conversation we're having right now. So whether it's at the water cooler or on Facebook or Twitter or, or, you know, wherever you're talking with people, maybe after church when you're grabbing a coffee, we talk about these stories and about that actor that we just found out about or, or that sitcom star that we loved and all of a sudden all these things are coming out about them. And we discuss it because what we do is we, we judge those people. And what we do is we talk about was, was that, you know, how awful was that? Oh, it wasn't that bad. And then they apologize. Was their apology sincere? Were they remorseful in, in that? And we talk about, is that person, could they ever change? Could they ever come back from what they've done? We, have you had a conversation like that? I have. I've had a conversation with, with people about those kind of things. So what we do. So what we do. We, we judge people and, and we want to see, are, are they too far gone? And I think that's one of the questions we have, whether it's for someone in the national, um, uh, national figure or it's someone in our lives. We wonder, have they done too much? Too much evil? Have they gone too far? Is it too late for them to find redemption? We wonder about that. Has that person just gone too far? Could they ever change from that evil? Sometimes it's people that have hurt us again and again, and then they do it again and again and again. And we say, man, that person will never change. That's the thoughts we have. We, We judge them. Will they ever change? Will they ever turn from their sinful ways? And that's an idea, that's a concept, that's a question that I think God wants us to be able to answer. Is someone too far gone? Is it too late for that person to find redemption? And that's something that I think Elijah needed to learn in his life, and we need to learn in turn. So that's what's happening in this chapter 21. Because you may remember, Elijah lived in a pretty awful time where nationally things were not going well. They had just come out of a three and a half year uh, period of famine and the king was awful. The Bible calls him one of the, wor- the most evil kings to ever live. So the national figure who's running everything, the commander in chief, people didn't like him at all. He was bad and his wife was even worse and she tried to kill the people of God and she did kill many of them. And even after God had shown up on Mount Carmel, fire had sh- flown down from heaven and, and ignited that that sacrifice, and everybody was supposed to know that there's the one true God finally, and then nothing changed. Nothing changed. Just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And I can just imagine Elijah thinking, man, this Ahab, he's too far gone. It's too late for him. And, and that's where we're going to pick up this story in 
chapter 21, verse 1. It says, Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Verse 2 says, Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But in verse 3 it says, But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home sullen and angry. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. So what's going on here? You know, at first glance, this seems like a pretty reasonable request from Ahab. He wants a vineyard. He sees it and he offers to pay for that vineyard or exchange it with the owner of that vineyard, a man named Naboth. And Naboth outright refuses the king. And it seems justified for Ahab to be a little angry. But let me explain a little bit about what's going on here. So this was in the town of Jezreel. And though we don't really know because we're 21st century Americans, but in this, uh, you know, thousand years before Jesus came about, this uh, town of Jezreel was not the capital of Israel. The capital at the time was a, a town called Samaria. So that's where the king Ahab would have ruled. But he liked Jezreel. This was like the town that he liked. So he had a separate palace there. In fact, um, archaeologists have excavated that town and have found that there is uh, one big palace in, in this area and it was surrounded by a bunch of buildings. So there's the one palace, the headquarter for everything. And this was probably, probably for Ahab, like his Martha's Vineyard or his Mar-a-Lago estate. This is where he went because he liked being there. He wanted to be out of the capital, not doing business. This was the town he loved. And he had his palace there, but he saw this plot of land, maybe adjacent to that palace, and said, I want it. I want it. I, I'm the king. I, I want it. And it, it says he did offer money for it or exchange for it, but here's the thing. It was a vineyard, and he wanted to turn it into a vegetable garden. Why is that significant? Two reasons. First off, vineyards take a very, very, very long time to produce good fruit. Sometimes decades, sometimes centuries to produce fruit. So this Naboth, I mean, he's, he's producing a good Pinot Grigio. I mean, it's, it's good. It's a, it's a good vintage. People like his fruit. His family has probably been working on it for years and years to get the soil right, to make everything right, because, you know, the grapes for good wine don't just happen overnight. They take years and decades. So he's been working on it and working on this land for a long time. It's his family business. And here's the other thing. He, this is his family's land. You know, in Israel, it wasn't that people moved around from town to town and, and bought a new house over here and moved their business over there. No, no, no. When God gave the promised land to Israel, he divided it up. He divided it up among the 12 tribes. And then within the 12 tribes, each clan and each family was given a piece of land. So the land that you had in Israel wasn't something you just acquired. You didn't just move there like us. We, you know, just moved to Denver last month, you know. I met a guy. I just moved in yesterday. <laughs> you know, so that's not how it was. This is the family that had been there centuries. Centuries. This is where Naboth had sat on his grandfather's lap and heard, heard stories about Moses. This is where he had taught his kids, where he was planning to raise his kids and, and their kids after them for generations to come. It was the family land. 
And Naboth wanted it not for a vineyard, but for a vegetable garden. So he was going to go down there and bulldoze everything, tear it down in order to plant some beets. Not to be used what it had been for. And, and, and Naboth was saying, this is my family land. God has given our family this land. Uh, you know, I, I can't give it to you. And Ahab, says, was sullen and angry. He went home, refused to eat. He threw a fit, a royal fit, literally. Threw a royal fit. Because people in power, people that have money and authority, get what they want. That's what Ahab was used to, and that's what happens with people in power. They get what they want. People say yes to them. You know, isn't it a bizarre thing that in our country, the richer you get, the more stuff you get for free? People are giving you all these products because they want you to showcase their clothes. That's not fair. It should be the opposite, right? But that's not what happens. When, When you're rich or when you're powerful, people give you stuff. They say yes to you. So that's what happens. When someone's in authority like Ahab or in our world or in our lives, they expect a yes. They expect to get what they want and they get angry when they don't. That's why we see people who are in those positions of power when a woman says no to them. They want it anyways. Jezebel now comes. Ahab is in his bed facing the wall, refusing to eat. And he tells her what happened. In verse 7 it says that Jezebel, Ahab's wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now, she doesn't go in there and say, Honey, it's okay. There's other vineyards. Somebody will sell to you. People say yes all the time. She doesn't say, You need to stop acting like a child. Okay? We, we can afford to buy something else. She doesn't say that. No, she, she prods him on to do something awful. She says, mm, Get up, because you're the king. You deserve this. You're in power. We're going to do something to get it. And she comes up with this plan that she would take the, the king's letterhead and write a few letters to the people of Jezreel. And she would seal them with the king's seal so that it would be official. And she wrote these letters to some people who would say yes in Jezreel, some people in power there, and said, okay, what I want you to do is take this man, Naboth, and make him the guest of honor at a fast. So this would have been a religious ceremony. So everybody in the town would have come together to fast and pray to God. Now, this is interesting because Jezebel did not like God. She hated God and tried to kill and did kill many of God's prophets. But she said, we're going to use that situation to our advantage. So call this fast. Make him have the seat of honor where everyone is assembled in town. And then find two scoundrels. Two men who will do anything. And have them accuse Naboth of blasphemy for cursing God and for cursing the king, which is treason. Two crimes that are punishable by execution in ancient Israel. And that's what happens. People say yes to these letters because they're from the king. And they take Naboth and he's there at the place of honor. Everything is going well for him. He's probably happy. Oh, look it. I get a seat of honor. These two men accuse him of saying something. And then all the people there get angry, grab him, drag him out of the city where they take turns throwing rocks at him until he dies. 
And then they leave his body there, outside of the city, don't give him a proper burial, and the dogs come and lick and eat his dead body. When Naboth hears about it, Jezebel hears about it, they say, great, just as we wanted. And he goes down, Ahab does, to the vineyard, and he's walking around, putting his hands in the air, you know, touching the leaves of this new vineyard that he has just taken because he has gotten it for himself, just what he wanted. That is what people in authority can do. Absolute power corrupts, absolutely. He has the authority, he gets what he wants, and if he doesn't, he's going to find a way to get it anyways. That's what we hear again and again in our world. That's what some of us experience personally. People that are in authority and power, doing what they want, getting away with things, taking advantage of people, hurting those who have no recourse against them. People's lives can be ruined because some of the things that people in authority over them have done to them. Maybe even when they were small children. This is the sin and sins that Naboth experienced at the hands of Ahab. That's where Elijah comes in. God tells Elijah, it's time for you to go confront Ahab again. He always gets put in those fun spots, right? Elijah, I want you to go tell Ahab what I have planned for him. So as he's walking through this vineyard, in verse 20, he sees Ahab. And it says that Ahab said to Elijah, So you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says, I am going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel. This is a word of judgment. This is a word of judgment that God has through the prophet that says, you have committed crimes against people who are powerless. You use your authority not for good, but for evil. Because of that, you will pay for your crimes. You will pay for your sins. And judgment is coming upon you. Your entire family will be wiped out. And and he goes on to say that what you did to Naboth is going to happen to your family. Your family will be killed. Even your wife Jezebel will be murdered. And her body will be licked by the dogs. What you have done to someone else will come upon your head. This is the word that Elijah gave. Ahab was evil. He was an awful man. He had done terrible things. And and in case you didn't think this was that bad, in verse 25, the Bible reminds us, there was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols. We had seen this before. Ahab and his wife Jezebel had led the people away from God and to worship these false gods and do very sinful, evil things. They had had a chance to repent down the mountain, right? When fire came down from heaven and yet nothing changed. Nothing changed. Finally, it was time for judgment because if anyone was too far gone, if it was ever too late for redemption for anyone, it would be Ahab. We could say that, right? What a terrible dude. What an awful, evil man. But then something happens. Verse 27. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. 
he lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. This was the high, powerful King Ahab, and here he is, in front of his attendants, in front of his people, tearing his Armani suit that had been custom-tailored. He ripped it and he put on burlap, which would be itchy against his sin, to, to remind him of all the awful things he had done. So that he would feel terrible all the time and, and confess his sins and repent before God. He humiliated himself because of what he had done. This is repentance. Even Ahab, the evil king, someone seemingly beyond repentance, repents. And we always wonder, well, is it true repentance? Isn't that the question we have? Did he really mean it? Is he just putting on a show? But God says in verse 28, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. So there would still be consequences for his house, but this terrible judgment of watching his entire family be killed and brutalized, he wouldn't have to see. The judgment was removed from Ahab in his lifetime. Now this is an amazing thing because God gives a word of mercy because Ahab has repented. And though we may wonder if he really meant to repent, I think God knows the heart. And that's what he sees and that's why he tells Elijah and he in turn tells us that even someone who seemed to be beyond redemption even that man, as terrible as he is, can find redemption. So that's what we see today as our big idea. It's never too late for redemption. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter the awful, people, awful crimes people have committed, it's never too late for anyone to find redemption. This is such an important word and it goes against our human nature because we want to be like God. Yeah, sick the dogs on their dead bodies. Bring judgment to them for all the things they've done. All these terrible crimes people have committed, these allegations. What they have done to these women, to these children. Bring judgment on them. But God says, even for them, even for us, it's never too late for redemption. In Japan, there was a man named Tokichi Ishii. And Tokichi was a terrible criminal. He had been arrested and put in prison over 20 times in his lifetime. Tokichi um, was known as a fierce tiger because he was violent, he was angry, and he never said sorry for anything he ever did. He had no regrets, no remorse. A couple of the crimes he had committed was that he was walking down the street one day and looked at a woman and didn't like the way she looked, so he took a towel and strangled her to death and picked her pockets and left. Or, or another time where he broke into a home to rob it and the husband and wife screamed too loudly, so he strangled both of them to death. Well, he was finally caught and found out for these murders, and they put him uh, on death row to await his hanging, his execution for all the crimes that he had committed. And still, he refused to apologize. And in fact, at one point, the prison, he got in a fight with the prison guard and assaulted this guard so they took him and tied him up and strung him up so that his toes could barely touch the ground and still he refused to say sorry. He was completely remorseless. But there was these two ladies, missionaries to Japan. And they went into the prison one day and carried with them a Bible, just a New Testament, and they handed it to Takachi, 
And, and they gave it to him, and, and, and he had nothing else to do, so he started reading it while he's on death row. And he came to the part where Jesus was tried and convicted and executed. And he saw that Jesus, even though he had done nothing wrong, had committed no crimes, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he said that at that moment it felt like a ten-inch nail had been driven into his heart. And and it transformed him. And, And he began to believe that maybe God is real and maybe even there would be forgiveness for someone like him. And at that point, he confessed to all the crimes he had committed and accepted his punishment as just. He said, I deserve this. I deserve to die. And before he was hanged for his crimes, he was reading in 2 Corinthians and he came to the point where it says, as poor yet making many rich. I want to pick up this quote. He says, as poor yet making many rich. This certainly does not apply to the evil life I led before I repented. But perhaps in the future, someone in the world will hear that the most desperate villain that ever lived repented of his sins and was saved by the power of Christ. And so may come to repent also. Then it may be that though I am poor myself, I shall be able to make many rich. He knew he deserved the earthly consequences. But yet even... For this hardened, awful criminal, Christ had mercy. Jesus died for his sins. And he had awaiting for him after his just execution, paradise. We do wonder, well, is it real when someone like that repents? Are they showing enough remorse? We, We ask these questions and we wonder. But the thing is that God knows the heart so that we don't have to. We don't have to judge people. We'll let God take care of that. And in fact, in James 4, 6, we read, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that's what Naboth did. He humbled himself. That's what um, Tokichi did. He humbled himself and repented after a lifetime of evil. And those are the people that God says, I have grace for them. I have mercy and forgiveness available even to the worst of us. And if you're wondering, well, does that mean we escape consequences? No. We do have to face consequences. Ahab's family would face a difficult, tragic end. There is consequences for our sin that many of us will have to do. For crimes, even that some of us have committed, we have to face the consequences. But yet for God, he says, I have forgiveness and grace available and the cosmic punishment the ultimate death, the execution that you should face for your sins, my son Jesus has taken in your place. You know, the the amazing thing about redemption and grace is that it's throughout the entire Bible. I want you to just think about the people in in history in the Bible. Think about Abraham. Abraham um, kind of pimped out his wife twice. Twice. He pretended to not know his wife or that it wasn't his wife and let other men take her. And his son Isaac did the same thing. And then Isaac's son Jacob deceived Isaac in order to steal his brother's inheritance. Or or maybe his wife Rachel, was she any better? Well, she robbed her family. You, You can see people like Moses who in a fit of anger 
beat a man to death and then hid the body. Or, or maybe Rahab, who was a prostitute. Or Samson, who frequented prostitutes. Or, or maybe King David, who saw a woman who was another man's wife, slept with her, and then killed that man to cover it up. Or, or there, his son Solomon. Solomon, who had a whole harem of wives and concubines to sleep with. Or, or, or look into the New Testament. It's someone like Peter, who, when Jesus was at his worst moment and needed help, Peter denied even knowing Jesus three times. Or, or maybe Paul, the great apostle, who stood there as the Christian preacher Stephen, who had done nothing wrong, was stoned to death, just like Naboth was, out of the city limits. And Paul nodded on in approval. These are the men and women that God chose to redeem. They're the heroes of the Bible. If redemption is for them, redemption is for us. It's never too late for redemption. So that should be an encouraging word to all of us. Because yes, there are these awful sinners that we judge, but we are awful sinners too. For the wages of sin, the Bible tells us, is death. We deserve to be punished for all the things that we have done. And yet it says, the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We have done wrong. We deserve punishment. And yet Jesus takes that punishment upon himself. So I have three points of application from this one big idea that we're taught in the scripture. Three points. And the first one, the first one is that you should not give up on anyone. Don't give up on anyone. I, I say this, you know, the, the order doesn't really matter, but, but so often we judge people and we think, man, they are too far gone. They have done too much wrong. What they did, that you can't come back from that. They've hurt me too many times. But we are taught through this that God has mercy and we should have mercy for that person. We shouldn't be judging them. Don't give up on anyone. I spoke with one woman this week who was praying for her adult son over 20 years before her son changed from his sinful ways. We can't give up on anyone. We need to keep praying. We need to keep going after these people. And showing them mercy because God has mercy for them. It's never too late for redemption. In Matthew 7, 1, Jesus commanded us, don't condemn others and God won't condemn you. We can't judge people. We can't condemn people and say, oh, they deserve this punishment because we deserve that punishment. And for those of you who are Christians in here, this is especially for us. We can become the most judgmental people around. We can become the most hypocritical And we condemn people for what they have done. But if we have been forgiven by God, if we have received mercy, we must show that mercy and forgiveness to others. We can't give up on anyone, no matter what they've done. Don't give up on anyone. And here's the second point. We need to share the gospel with someone. We can't give up on people, so we have to tell them the good news. Not just this word that there's judgment coming for their sins, but we know what happens through Jesus Christ. That Jesus took the judgment and punishment upon himself and has grace and mercy and forgiveness available to all who would believe in him. That's the gospel. The good news that Jesus saves even awful sinners like me and you. And I don't say share the gospel with everyone, although we should. I say with someone because sometimes everyone is just so vague. We need to think of that one person, that someone that we're supposed to share with. Elijah it was commanded just to go to Ahab, to someone So we too are are commanded, and some of you are urged right now, I want you to think about who's that one person, that's someone that you need to tell the good news to. 
Or if you're kind of nervous about it, maybe you need to take this card and invite them this Christmas so they can hear the gospel. Because someone in your life, someone needs to know that there is hope. And if you're like, well, Matt, I don't know about talking about judgment and sin and hell. Well, sometimes we have to. Sometimes we have to. Ahab needed to hear that word of judgment before he repented. Sometimes people in our lives need to know that there are consequences for sin. Did you see this news story? Um, there's this picture that was in the news. It first went on social media and then was in the news. This woman named Erica Hurt in Indiana. This was just over a year ago. Um, and if you can tell from this, especially I'll zoom in on her left hand, it's that she's holding a syringe because she had just OD'd on heroin. And um, the police took this photo and they, they posted it online. It's, who knows about the ethics of that? But they did and it went viral and people were like, how could you post that picture? You know, that's awful. But this woman, Erica, after the paramedics found her and, and tried five times to revive her, they finally did. And she was recovering in the hospital where a couple weeks later she saw this photo. And it changed her. Because what you don't see in this photo is that in the back seat was her 10-month-old son. And she knew that this photo showed how awful she had been living and how bad things had become. And she knew the consequences and what was going to happen to her son and her life. She didn't want to live like that any longer. She had to see what had happened to her in order to change her ways. And she did. And it's been over a year now that she's been sober. The point is that it doesn't do anybody a favor to tell them life is good and they're going to heaven if they have sinned and never repented of that sin. So we need to share the gospel with someone. So who's the person in your life that you need to tell the good news to? Who's the person you need to share the gospel with? And that leads us to our um, third application point. Repent, everyone. There's a comma in there. Because all of us, every single one of us needs to repent. It's not just for those people we read about in the news. It's not just for those awful people in our lives. We too need to repent. We need to acknowledge that we have sin that has, should have consequences. And we need to repent of that and receive mercy from God. Forgiveness for all the things that we have done. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, it says that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. God offers that forgiveness to you and me, to all of us. So some of you in here, you're not a Christian and you've never accepted this gift of forgiveness. You've never repented. And I want to challenge you, encourage you today to repent of your sins and receive that forgiveness because that punishment will no longer be on you. You will have eternal life in heaven. There will be forgiveness in your life. I want you to do that today. And if you're here, though, and you're a Christian, I want you to repent, too. So I said repent to everyone. Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 Theses to the wall, the first thing he wrote was, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Whether it's from judgmentalism or hypocrisy or whether some sin that we've hidden in our life or something you did this morning on the way to church, we need to repent of those sins. So we're going to 
close with Amazing Grace here, a song that you know well. And I want everyone to take this opportunity to repent of their sins. So we're going to have a moment of silence with our head bowed. So let's please just close our eyes and bow our heads together. God, uh, we're sinners. Would you hear our prayers of confession and repentance? God, thank you that you hear our sins and that you purify us of all unrighteousness. Thank you for your forgiveness. Now, with everybody's head still bowed and eyes closed, if you're here and you, you've never repented of your sins, you'd say, I don't follow Jesus, I'm not a Christian, but you're ready today to repent of your sins and receive that gift. I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and I just want everybody to say this, even if you said it before, but this is a prayer specifically for you, so let's, let's all say this out loud. Lord God, I confess that I have sinned. I repent of my ways. And I ask you to forgive me. Lord, thank you for forgiving me. And thank you for giving me eternal life. Help me to follow Jesus the rest of my days. Now, with your head still bowed and eyes closed, if that was the first time you've ever repented of your sins, would you please raise your hand? Would you please raise your hand? Awesome. Awesome. It, go ahead and mark your cards um, on, before you leave today and drop it in one of the boxes so we can be praying for you. Um, because God is good. Lord God, we thank you for your forgiveness, for your mercy that abounds to sinners like me, sinners like all the people in this room. And we pray that that grace and that mercy would abound to us and we could live in that and be people that show others mercy and not judge others. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us right now to worship you. We thank you for your amazing grace. Amen.